Something weird happened on Twitter this summer. One night in late July, there was a flurry of tweets about something going on at Inderlik Air Base in Turkey. Inderlik is an important base for U.S. operations in Syria and Iraq, and it's probably where Turkey keeps its nuclear weapons. This was just a few weeks after a failed military coup in Turkey, and people were saying that it looked like police were gearing up to stop a second coup or an attack at the base. There was a small group of super active Twitter accounts from all over the world, tweeting for hours about the reported coup attempt, trying to draw media attention to it. They speculated that large dump trucks were there to remove nuclear weapons, that 10,000 people were assembling nearby, ready to attack. And they complained that the mainstream media was ignoring all of this, asking people to pray for Americans stationed there, comparing it to the attacks in Benghazi. Many of these tweets linked back to news articles from Russia's state media outlets, RT and Sputnik, articles that referenced other on-the-ground reports of an attempted coup that involved the Inderlik base. But here's the thing. There was no attack at Inderlik. There was no coup attempt. They did increase security at the base, but for something totally unrelated. Which is why it's especially odd that a week later, Donald Trump's then-campaign manager, Paul Manafort, referenced the attack during an interview with CNN's Jake Tapper. I mean, there's plenty of news to cover this week, but I haven't seen covered. You had, you had the NATO base in Turkey being under attack by terrorists. Uh, uh, you had a number of things that, that were appropriate to this campaign, were part of what Mr. Trump has been talking about. His claim was that the media should have been focused on something other than Donald Trump's inflammatory comments that week. Like what he called a terrorist attack at a NATO base in Turkey. Turns out, never actually happened. So you've got a fake news story being reported on by Russian outlets, coincidentally being amplified by a small group of super active Twitter users, and eventually bubbling up in a major network interview with Trump's campaign manager. How exactly did that happen? This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Meg Kramer. This week, we're talking about something we truly know very little about, Russia's involvement in the U.S. election. From hacking to Twitter trolling to targeted campaigns that question the legitimacy of the U.S. political process. Plus, whether or not it's possible to trace any of those things back to the Russian government. Russia is closely connected to some of the biggest foreign policy issues that have come up during this campaign, from nuclear weapons to NATO. And I'm proud to stand by our allies in NATO against any threat they face, including from Russia. To fighting ISIS and to Syria, where Russia has supplied troops and resources to pro-Assad forces. Russia hasn't paid any attention to ISIS. They're interested in keeping Assad in power. Then there's that little thing about hacking the DNC. The U.S. government, which normally keeps this kind of thing to itself, has officially accused Russia of orchestrating that hack to interfere in the U.S. election. There have been other hacks, too, into the Clinton Foundation's emails and the email accounts of many Clinton campaign staffers. Cybersecurity experts believe Russian groups are also behind those attacks. This episode, I'll be talking with BuzzFeed's Miriam Elder and Ali Watkins about how Russia's old-fashioned spycraft has taken on a new cybery twist— Plus, we'll talk about why the relationship between the U.S. and Russia is getting worse and how that's playing out in Europe, Syria, and in the campaign. So what does all of this have to do with a fake news story about an airbase in Turkey? Clint Watts was following the Twitter activity around Inderlik that night 
and he wrote about it for the Daily Beast. He's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. And he told me that this sequence of events, fake news story, lots of tweets, attempts to draw mainstream media attention, follows a familiar pattern used by Russian groups online. So it would seem to be that they are Russian. And the way that you can sort of push this attribution, you know, they will always cite, almost always cite Russian television propaganda or Sputnik News propaganda. Sometimes they'll cite both at the same time. As soon as an article gets published on a Russian state outlet like RT or Sputnik, a bunch of accounts that don't seem to be connected will start tweeting about it all at once. They seem to be extremely in tune to when those articles come out in a way that would make you think, well, how could they possibly know this is going to come out on a Saturday night at 9.30 and be this excited about it? In many cases, these accounts are fakes or bots. Watts says it's easy to tell when that's the case because there's usually something a little off about them. They look strange. So if you've ever seen like the pictures in picture frames when you buy them like at Target or Walmart or whatever, they would have pictures like that. They just look odd. The pictures look odd. Their username choices can be odd too. The other thing they do is they will cycle weird names. So sometimes you can even find a bot where they get so lazy they're basically running a dictionary against the account names and it'll be like green apple, yellow banana, at, you know, at yellow banana. And you get these weird patterns, and they're all pushing the same spam. This is a tactic that pro-Putin and pro-Russia groups have been using online for a couple of years now. Spamming online communities with positive messages about Russia or negative messages about Western democracy. The point of using bots to do this is to make it seem legit. Like, if a ton of people are talking about the same story, there must be some kernel of truth to it. The idea is to eventually get it picked up by real people on the real internet. And accounts designed to fool U.S. voters will tweet using familiar hashtags. So they use Trump, let's say, as a hashtag. Hillary stroke was a big one for a while. Benghazi is huge. And they've tried that a couple times. Many of the fake accounts even look like Trump supporters, with profiles that mention God and Constitution... The idea is to find the people whose ideology lines up with the general thrust of the story. In this case, that it's dangerous for the U.S. and NATO to be meddling in Turkey. That message is a perfect fit for Trump supporters who are interested in his isolationist rhetoric. My foreign policy will always put the interests of the American people and American security above all else. Has to be first. Has to be. That will be the foundation of every single decision that I will make. It's not totally clear if all that tweeting is how Paul Manafort heard about the attack that never happened. And that's one of the things that makes this tactic so effective. If an idea gets seeded by hundreds of Russian Twitter bots and then makes its way to the real Internet, it can be hard to figure out where someone got their fake news in the first place. This confusion came up again last week when Trump misquoted Sidney Blumenthal, one of Clinton's advisors, saying that Blumenthal blamed Clinton for the Benghazi attack. If the GOP wants to raise that as a talking point against her, it is legitimate. In other words, he's now admitting that they could have done something about Benghazi. This just came out a little while ago. Blumenthal never actually said that. But the same misquoting error cropped up on Twitter and in a Sputnik story earlier that day. It's not clear where Trump first picked up on it. But by the time a fake news story goes mainstream, it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. What matters is that the ideas behind the story stick, like ideas about instability and nuclear weapons in Turkey, or about Clinton's role in the Benghazi attack. 
These are divisive issues in American politics, and Russian groups are interested in encouraging dissent and distrust. Which is why it's not just Trump supporters that get targeted by these tactics. Watts told me that Bernie Sanders supporters, white supremacists, even the Black Lives Matter movement have all been targeted by this kind of Twitter trolling. In the Inderlich case, the bots appealed directly to what Trump supporters wanted to hear. People are super passionate both for their cause and for information to support their cause. So those events make them prime targets for this sort of influence because they need that information to bash Hillary Clinton or to promote Trump. And so it's natural. And there's so many people around it that you only have to gain a fraction or a foothold for it to amplify really quick. Clint Watts is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. I want to take a minute here to point out that we are hearing way more about Russia this election cycle than we did in 2012. This is especially striking when you go back and look at the transcripts from the Obama-Romney debates. In all three, the word Russia was used a total of just 10 times. And here's the first time it was mentioned in the final debate. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s or now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. It's hard to imagine that same zinger landing this year. The word Russia has been used 50 times in just the first two debates, although that could also have something to do with the way Donald Trump uses language. I don't think anybody knows it was Russia that broke into the DNC. She's saying Russia, 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 but I don't, maybe it was. I mean, it could be Russia, but it could also be China. Joining me now to talk about what we do know about Russian hacking and about why Russia-U.S. relations are such a big focus of the campaign this year is Ali Watkins, a national security correspondent for BuzzFeed News. Hey, Ali. Hi, Meg. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Also with us is Miriam Elder, BuzzFeed News' world editor. Hey, Miriam. Hey, Meg. So let's just start by getting a basic sense of what's going on between the U.S. and Russia right now. How would you describe that relationship? It's probably the worst that it's been since the end of the Cold War. The U.S. and Russia are opposed to each other on several fronts all around the world. And that's from what's happening in Ukraine to what's happening in Syria. Uh, nothing is going well right now. I think the the, the interesting part about the dynamics right now in the U.S.-Russia relationship is that in a lot of ways... I think the U.S. is is kind of trying to pretend they're surprised by this. You know, in reality, if you talk to a lot of people in the spook community and the intelligence community, um, there's kind of a, a perception at this point that the U.S. really kind of sat on their heels for a while. Um, and, and as Russia was kind of preparing for these kinds of moves, the U.S. was not kind of doing the same in a parallel sense, you know, wasn't putting a lot of efforts into um, espionage against Russia, wasn't putting a ton of effort, resources, whether human, budgetary or otherwise, into combating or, or at least dealing with the Russian dynamic. Um, so that's kind of a, a curveball in the conversation that I don't think the U.S. wants to publicly really talk about. When was the turning point? How did that how did it start to go wrong? So things really took a turn for the worse back in 2011. 
Putin had been prime minister for a few years and decided he wanted to come back to the presidency. And a lot of Russians were unhappy about this, particularly modern, urban Russians. And they took to the streets in the tens of thousands in numbers really not seen since the end of the Cold War. And Putin, rather than engaging with this criticism that they wanted more democracy and more transparency, he decided to blame the State Department. The U.S. State Department. The U.S. State Department. And he came out and said that the U.S. State Department, which was led at the time by Hillary Clinton, was paying protesters to come out into the streets and protest against him. And this was happening in the midst of the Arab Spring. And this is when you had leaders across the Middle East falling one after the other. And the number one thing that drives Putin is this desire to stay in power and this constant paranoia that somebody is going to overturn him and that somebody is the United States. So there was growing mistrust from the Russian side and growing concern from the U.S. side. Just they couldn't avoid it anymore. That There was no way that Russia was moving towards any sort of democracy. And then what happened in Crimea? So then Crimea. Um, that was about three years later. It was the day after the Olympics. And completely out of the blue, Russia sent what we call now little green men, basically undercover troops, into Crimea to seize the peninsula. And it was the first time in modern history that Russia had sent troops over a border to seize a territory. Everybody was freaked out. This was completely redrawing the map uh, of Europe. So that also caused a huge rupture in relations between the U.S. and Russia and led to a series of sanctions both by the U.S. and by the EU and the end of any pretense that there was you know, a good relationship between both sides. So you have tensions between the U.S. and Russia really starting to ramp up when Putin becomes president. Then you have this issue of sanctions in Crimea. And now there's Syria. What do people need to know about U.S.-Russia relations in Syria? That's one of the most complicated questions because there's <laughs> so much deception on all sides. Um, but I'm going to try and explain it in something of a clear way. So back to the Arab Spring, one of the countries that gets swept up in this is Syria. And people are out in the streets. Putin is watching from Russia, convinced that this is a U.S. plot to get one of his allies, um, Bashar al-Assad, out of power. The U.S., uh, you know, you've got officials sitting in D.C. saying we support democracy and Assad must go. The revolution quickly turns into an all-out civil war, an incredibly violent one, where you have uh, Assad massacring protesters and then some protesters turning into rebels. Those rebels eventually get U.S. support. Uh, meanwhile, Russia is continuing its support for the government. The violence grows. The standoff grows. It just becomes, you know, the horrific war that we see today. So fast forward to five years later, and we have this incredibly bloody war continuing in the country. Uh, and you have the U.S. sending uh, weapons to some of the rebels uh, and at least publicly saying that Assad must still go. And they're kind of engaging in this dance with the Russians on and off about coming to some sort of a conclusion. But everything continues to be horrible and no conclusion has been reached uh, on the Russian side. You have the Russians pouring in weapons and advisors uh, and doing some of the bombing for the Assad regime. And publicly, what the Russians say is that they're targeting ISIS. But what people on the ground say, what uh, officials say, is that they're in fact targeting anyone who's a critic of the Assad regime, uh, including these rebels. So you have like the public narrative and then you have the real situ situation on the ground. 
Ali, as you've been following this, how have these points of conflict, these sort of different ways that the U.S. is facing off against Russia right now, how have they come up in the election? Uh, I mean, the notion of like the U.S. being at proxy wars with Russia in, in various theaters um, is, I think, really important here because you, you talk about you can't ask about Syria policy without talking about Russia. And you, at this point, you really can't talk about NATO. You can't talk about the EU. You can't talk about pretty much any policy without considering what Russian fingerprints are on it, what impacts that has on a not just U.S.-Russia relationship, but just the West in general's relationship with Russia. Um, and I think the the real question in the election, which quite frankly hasn't really been addressed seriously for a whole variety of reasons, things aren't addressed seriously in this campaign, but it is what the next four years are going to mean with U.S. and Russia. I would agree with Ali there that we don't know what um, like what Clinton's real position is, but Trump, I don't know. He see, he see, he seems to be pretty clear that he's like a fan. No, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it, that many of the things that he talks about would benefit Russia, pulling NATO tanks, or even you know advocating for cooperation with Russia in Syria, like he did in the last debate. I don't know, Putin. I think it would be great if we get along with Russia because we could fight ISIS together as an example. But I don't know, Putin. It's one of the most interesting questions. And, you know, people are really split. Like, is Trump a Russian stooge or is it that he's advocating these positions that just happen to align with Russia? Like, He's an anti-internationalist. He doesn't think that the U.S. should project power around the world. And that's something that is like music to Putin's ears. Putin has been anti-NATO for a really long time. He sees it as an anti-Russian organization. He sees what the U.S. did in Libya as also like an anti-Russian thing and Syria as an anti-Russian thing. He sees everything that's happening as he's an incredibly paranoid person and sees all this as the U.S. kind of closing in on Russia and eventually getting to him and deposing him. And he thinks, I think, he thinks that Hillary Clinton personally wants this. Do we know, by the way, if Trump does have any sort of business dealings or financial ties to Russia? So people have been investigating it since the start of his campaign and his ties to Russia emerged or his affinity with Russia emerged. Um, and he like was trying to buy a hotel for a long time and it never worked out. Um, he went there a few times for that. He also went like to host um, a Miss Universe pageant. Um, but then there's like a lot of weirdness as there usually is uh, around the Trump campaign. So during the last debate, he went on this really weird rant about Russia. I can't even remember what the question was, but I don't think it was even about like a foreign policy issue. Like Russia was not related. And he ended up kind of just going off like, I don't know anything about Russia. Well, no, I do know something about Russia. I have no loans from there. I know nothing about Russia. I know I know about Russia, but I know nothing about the inner workings of Russia. I don't deal there. I have no businesses. That I have no loans from Russia. I have a very, very... Great balance and then he has had advisors that have ties to Russia. So he had this guy, Carter Page, who was going around Russia presenting himself as Trump's uh, Russia advisor. The Trump camp has since like disavowed him. So it's not clear if he ever had like an actual relationship. But this is a guy who um, like developed relationships with major oil companies and lobbied like for oil companies in Russia. Um so that's one. And then, you know, uh, another major thing was uh, his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who um, had 
been working for the former president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, and the New York Times re- had a great story revealing some like potentially shady money ties between uh, Manafort and Yanukovych, and Yanukovych was the pro-Russia candidate. It all it's all very confusing, but it all comes back to Russia. It's been really weird to me that like all of the people around Trump seem to either have a tie to Russia or, you know, have some kind of vested interest there. And then Trump, when he figures that out, he's kind of like, oh, okay, let him go. Like, it's, it's unclear to me whether Trump is secretly super knowledgeable about Russia and knows that he's kind of a repeating a lot of the talking points, et cetera, et cetera. Or if it's just he surrounds himself with people that he doesn't vet closely enough and then after he dumps a lot of Kremlin talking points, realizes and then lets them go. And Hillary Clinton also has a long relationship with Russia. Most recently, her attempt at a Russian reset when she was Secretary of State. It's it's so interesting that that hasn't come up more in the campaign because in the beginning, I mean, that was like one of her signature moves was to totally reset relations with Russia. It was kind of there were symbols that it was destined to fail from the beginning. I don't know if you remember, but they had this like symbolic meeting between her and then the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and she presented him with a button. She represents what President Obama and Vice President Biden and I have been saying. It was supposed to be this really cutesy thing, like let's press the button together and reset our relations and it's a new era. And then there was like a mistranslation. We worked hard to get the right Russian word. Do you think we got it? You get it wrong. I got it wrong. (laughs) It should be Perezagruska. And rather than saying in Russian reset, it said like overload. Which, like, what more perfect thing could you have for this uh, entire situation that's happened? But so, yeah, she was the arc, you know, it was she took it very personally. It was her thing. And then it it all blew up in uh, 2011 and 2012 when uh, the protests happened. And it's been steadily getting worse since then. Worse and worse and worse. Um, It's so interesting to watch, like, the rise of Russia again, I guess, as like an enemy in the U.S. narrative, because the flip side exists in Russia. Like they need an enemy. They need something to blame everything on. What do people what do people in Russia think of this? What do people in Russia think of Clinton and Trump and how all this is playing out? I mean, it depends on who you ask. Just like here, you know, there's all different kinds of people. Like if you talk to Muscovites, like young Muscovites, um, people from Moscow, they, you know, who are like educated and well-traveled and kind of part of this like global conversation, they obviously think it's all kind of ridiculous and are saying that a lot of both the fear in, well, mainly a lot of the fear in that the Russian government is trumping up, that was an unintentional use of that word, um, is purely to distract the population from like the sinking economy in Russia. Then if you talk to older people, you know, who remember the Cold War, to them, like the U.S. is the eternal enemy and they are just waiting like they have they were raised on hatred of the United States and are kind of waiting for, you know, for this feeling to come back. So all different kinds. So there are a few ways that we know that Russia has been meddling in the U.S. election, like the DNC hacks. And Russian groups are probably behind hacks into the Clinton Foundation and Clinton campaign emails. Ali, can you walk me through what happened with those hacks? 
So the beginning of, of this whole thing, the, the real tipping point were or was, excuse me, the the DNC hacks. And this was, of course, the release of internal Democratic National Committee emails that were published by WikiLeaks on the eve of the Democratic National Convention. Um, and then the timeline here stems back to early 2016. I think it was March or so um, when, a, when a quiet report suggested that Russian hackers had been able to infiltrate internal DNC emails. Um, that report was largely dismissed, mostly missed, um, until all of these emails were dumped by WikiLeaks. Uh, so that was kind of the, the first real instance. And it seems, I mean, since then, it's just kind of been a, a constant barrage of hacks of, of emails, whether it's um, after the DNC hacks, you had the hacks and publishing of several internal Clinton Foundation emails. Um, you had the release of just most recently John Podesta's emails, which were um, he John Podesta is obviously the chair of Clinton's campaign. Um, and, and all of these, I mean, the, the perceived Russia connection beyond the cybersecurity group reports um, and intelligence committee or intelligence community reports um, that it traces back to Russia is also the connection to WikiLeaks here, which is another part of this story um, that the perception is, is obviously that there's a, a very strong connection, not even perception. There's a very strong connection between Julian Assange and, and Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Um, and and that, that the emails were published specifically on WikiLeaks lends credence to the notion that Russia is behind a lot of this. And it's pretty unusual for the U.S. to point to a country and say, you were behind this attack. But that has happened in the case of the DNC hacks, right? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how they respond. This is only the second time that they've called out uh, an attacker like this. Um, you know, the you'll see various hacks happening and anonymous officials leaking to the press are like, oh, it was probably China or it was probably Russia. But the only other time they've actually called out uh, a state actor is when North Korea hacked Sony. And the response there was more sanctions. So I guess, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see how they respond. It can, you know, the idea of like an escalating cyber war, I don't, I'm not sure anybody wants that. So there were the DNC hacks, the hacks into email accounts of Clinton campaign staffers, but there were also two hacks into state election systems in Arizona and Illinois. And in both cases, the FBI thinks it was Russian hacking groups that got in, although it's not clear whether or not the Russian government was involved. But getting into an election system is a very different kind of hack because it's not targeted at getting this political information that you would use to shame a candidate in the way that the DNC hacks and the Clinton campaign email hacks were used. First of all, I think they've probably hacked a lot more than two, quite frankly. One interesting part of the hack of state election systems is the perceived impact that could have and the realistic impact that could have. I mean, the, the perception when you say they've hacked into state election systems is like, oh, my God, they could get into the computer and punch a bunch of holes that weren't supposed to be punched. Or you could press the Hillary Clinton button and suddenly the button goes through for Donald Trump. And I think that's what a lot of people naturally kind of assume when you hear something like that. And the Jim Comey, the director of the FBI, made an interesting point on this at a panel the other day um, that 
U.S. state election systems are pretty much archaic um, in in how they operate. I mean, we're talking like some of them like 90s era machines that still punch holes in real paper. And he said, you know, that sucks on a lot of fronts. But on one particular front, it's really hard to hack into and mess with. I think at the risk of kind of getting ahead of the conversation here, the the hack of state election systems, it may not be so much an operational end as much as a playing into this general narrative of your democracy is not secure and just think of what we could do with this, even though operationally they probably can't do much. Yeah, I think, you know, the Russians, this is their favorite game. And they are so good with just making you question reality. And what they're doing now is like bringing that into the cybersphere. Like I had a friend when I was living in Moscow who um, who worked at the U.S. Embassy and she would bring lunch every day to work. And they would always give her like a plastic fork and knife, but she had like a regular fork and knife in her desk. So she would just collect these plastic forks and knives and keep them in a drawer in her desk. And she came home one day, like to her home, <laughs> which was not in the embassy, uh, and found them all laid out on the kitchen counter. What? Like oh, <laughs> somebody had brought these plastic packages of forks and knives to her home. And it was just like their way to signal, like, we can do whatever we want. We're watching you. That You hear all the time, like stories of diplomats coming home and furniture being rearranged. And it's just so that they, they're like, we're here. Nothing is real. <laughs> We're watching you. And it's so like what's chilling about that is how mundane and arbitrary it is. Like there's there's nothing nothing makes sense about that. Totally. It's psychological warfare. Does the US have a team of hackers who are hacking into Russian politicians campaign email accounts? Like do we do this too? Uh, I that's I think that's a, we don't know that for sure. I mean, I think the presumption is that we are and we'd probably be stupid not to, given that's just kind of the new reality of cyber warfare. Um, I mean, there's certainly teams at NSA whose specific job it is, is to figure out essentially to do what to do to Russia or China or whatever you know superpower you want to pick what they do to us in the cybersphere. Um, so nobody wants to show their cards, but I think it'd be foolish to assume we aren't doing that. Yeah, and I don't know if, if like the U.S. is you know hacking into into Russian leaders' accounts, but one you know one thing is like it's all again it's all about perception versus action a lot of the time, and so this it's been so weird to sit here in the U.S. and hear this accusation of like Russia is meddling in our election. Because that's word for word what I would hear sitting in Moscow from Russian leaders, which is the U.S. is meddling in our election. And what they would mean is not, you know, hacking and all that kind of stuff. But they would see like U.S., you know, funding for NGOs, for, let's say, election monitoring, you know, things that, w- that are considered and that are like just tools of a democracy, NGOs and that kind of thing. And they would see that as meddling um, in their election. It's very strange. So we've... We've sort of like danced around this question a little bit, and I want to just lay it out. Does Putin want Donald Trump to be president? Like many of these hacks are things that have benefited the Trump campaign because it's given them ammunition to turn back on Clinton's campaign. I mean, yes, 100 percent. Yes. Like, yes, he wants that is everything that he's doing right now in order to make sure that, you know, that's achieved. I'm 
I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, Putin and Trump align like pretty perfectly. Um, I I think, you know, there there are ideological things or not ideological, like strategic things. Like, for example, Putin doesn't want the U.S. Um, involved in the world in any way, particularly in countries that he considers his sphere of influence. Trump like just doesn't want to deal with the world um, because I don't know if he has the intellectual like firepower to do so <laughs> um, or for whatever reason. But on a on a deeper level, I think Putin wants chaos because the crazier it is over here, the stronger he feels because we are so so just kind of focused on figuring out what's happening here. The U.S. doesn't have time in his mind to engage in the world. Allie, what about you? I totally agree with Miriam on this. I mean, I think the notion of Putin wanting a Trump presidency is is probably true, but not for the reasons everyone assumes. Like, it's not necessarily because he thinks Trump would be easier to work with. I don't think it's because he necessarily... I mean, Trump has proven so volatile on policy. I don't even think there's any guarantee that he wouldn't decide Russia is public enemy number one on his the second day in office. But I think the goals in, in Russian meddling aren't don't seem to be so much for policy as much as like, what's the avenue here that's going to make people doubt their Western constructs? And when you're looking at a Clinton or a Trump administration or just the notion of a a Trump victory is enough to chip away at at a lot of people's faith in the American democracy. And so I think when you talk about who Putin wants in office, I think he, quite frankly, doesn't really give a shit policy-wise. I think it's just a matter of, like, which one is going to sow more chaos and which one is going to push more people away from a Western democracy or, or chip away at their faith in Western democracies. And there's no secret that, that Trump is that person. So we know that Russia's relationship to the U.S. has changed a lot since 2011, from Crimea to Syria to just Russia-U.S. relations in general. We know that Russian groups are waging an obscure social media campaign to stir shit up in conversations about U.S. politics. And we know that Russian hackers got into the computers of the Democratic National Committee and timed the release of the information they found to discredit the party that's running against Donald Trump. So do we know if this is a years-long plot, five years in the making by Vladimir Putin to destroy American democracy? (laughs) Well, Meg, no one knows anything. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, might it be? (laughs) I guess anything is possible. That's what's so weird about all of this. So much of this Russia-U.S. stuff seems like it's basically out of a spy novel. That's because it's pretty much out of a spy novel. (laughs) (laughs) Allie, Miriam, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. No One Knows Anything is produced by me, Meg Kramer, with editorial oversight from Kate Nocera and Eleanor Kagan, and production support from Chiquita Pascal and Julia Furlong. Our music was composed by Beauty Pill. Subscribe to No One Knows Anything on iTunes to follow our coverage through the election. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at No One Knows, or you can email us at no one knows anything at buzzfeed.com. That's all for now, and we'll be back soon with more things we don't know.